At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey, I love you forever. You hear me? I love you forever, and I'm coming back. I know you're going to get this message. Professor Brands assured me that you're going to get it to you. Know that I love you. Love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. All of this is one little girl's bedroom every moment. It's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. They can't communicate. That's why I'm here. I'm going to find a way to tell Murph, just like I found this moment. How Cooper? Love, Tars, love. Love, Tars, love. Yes, Interstellar is mentioned and fitting for this week's show on precognitive dreams. But the film's ideas are also fitting for this podcast. You know a main theme of this podcast is about escaping the consciousness-killing simulation we're trapped in. Connecting with higher realms of pure imagination and laughter. But another theme is about finding and integrating all the versions of you. By going inward, sure. But also by going back and forth in time and space like the Sethians did in their writings. Linking all the yous that you have been and always will be. Culminating in a holy gospel, an eternal song that you were meant to share with the multiverse. And once having said yes to the instant, the affirmation is contagious. It bursts into a chain of affirmations that knows no limit. To say yes to one instant is to say yes to all of existence. That's Gnostic, but it's also the greatest love story ever. Because all the yous, once united in an ethereal matrimony or family reunion, will provide the greatest happily ever after ending. One that is timeless and ongoing. The true and total and unique you that is breathless and eternal and supreme. 
standing under the aeons to heal the universe. Love isn't going to save us. It's what we have to save. Love, as the Gospel of Philip states, love is the wind through which we grow. Love. Love is a promise, as Doctor Who said. And the promise is that you were always meant to reunite with all your versions. Because they all matter and have value. Reunite with a humility and a pride. Victoriously telling the cosmos, this is who you are. Like the goddess Thunder in the Nag Hammadi Library. As we will discuss in our interview. I was pressed down like coal. I suffered. That's what an angel is. Dust pressed into a diamond by the weight of this world. You crushed me. So welcome to the greatest love story ever. To that dream of you. Welcome to an infinity of yous. Inward and across time and space. And the means to find them right now. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was Aeon Bytenostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. That will remind you you are on a great quest of love in a world that collapses with so much fear and hate, where the Archons have unleashed their deadliest and most powerful dark hypnotic spell ever. It's like we've forgotten who we are now. Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. Well, we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down worry about our place in the dirt. But here at Aeon Bite, you are safe. And as mentioned, let's find a way to fall in love with all your versions that matter and have value. Understand the beautiful romance that you are. And that dreaming awake is our natural state of being. For this, we have the pleasure of having back Eric Wargo and his arsenal of nooses bombs. Eric materializes at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new and pioneering book, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, Interpreting Messages from Your Future. Think of the film Interstellar again. Think of remembering the future, as Philip K. Dick said. Think of leveraging Jungian dreamwork to heal your past and Eric's excellent precognitive dreamwork techniques to heal the future. Think of what the White Queen told Alice once. It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. 
Last night, I woke up and I saw me staring down at myself. Oh yeah? I think it was a future me. Could something like that be possible? Time travel? It seemed like I was there to, to help me or warn me or something. Maybe it was an alternate self. And like Oscar Wilde said, a dreamer is one who can only find his way by moonlight. And his punishment is that he sees the dawn before the rest of the world. Or maybe think of when Joseph Campbell said, Myths are public dreams. Dreams are private myths. By finding your own dream and following it through, it will lead you to the myth world in which you live. But just as in dream, the subject and the object, though they seem to be separate, are really the same. We're like the dreamer. Dreams, and then lives inside the dream. But, who is the dreamer? All your versions of you are waiting for you, to heal you, or be healed by you. Like Sophia, they love you regardless of how high or how low you've gone, what you've done, where you are. Your full story is your daemon or higher self. Embrace your fantasies, your creativity, and, of course, your dreams. As Philip K. Dick said, Yahweh's prime role is to keep reality from becoming dreamlike. For me, in 2374, it became dreamlike. And as Prospero said in The Tempest, We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Venerable tradition of sorcerers, shamans, and other visionaries who have developed and perfected the art of dream travel, the so-called lucid dream state, whereby consciously controlling your dreams, you're able to discover things beyond your capacity to apprehend in your awake state. And you know what? As you connect with the many versions of you, you'll soon find that you can connect to all other individuals out there and their versions. Everything that matters is connected. Everything that matters is a tapestry of pure liquid light, inspiring and awaking all that is sentient as we illuminate the desert of the real. Or as the Gospel of Mary says, every nature, every model form, every creature exists in and with each other. Yeah, but what you're experiencing, as far as I can gather, with all these manifestations of uh, regression and precognition and transmigratory astral fucking chatterings, is just the equivalent of that first primeval grunt. One day you'll realise that you've had not just one or two past or future existences, but that you were and are everybody and everything that has ever been or will ever be. Not much else I can say. Please keep in mind that you can find this podcast now on Odyssey and Rockfin if you want to get away from legacy digital platforms and support with some crypto. Good timing, as YouTube struck down some of my interviews with Tracy Twyman, who remains a threat to that wickedness in high places, even after material passing. <laughs> 
That's how powerful she is. And they'll soon be gunning for my other astral guests. Censorship is American as apple pie, so shut up. Keep in mind, too, that I am offering voiceover or voice acting services. I'll elevate any commercial, audiobook, podcast, game, or video to the heights your project needs to go. I've got the home studio and the professional skill set. I've already done several commercials and audiobooks. I am at your service. And please continue to support this Red Pill Cafeteria. The virtual Alexandria continues to grow, but a lot is changing and shifting this year. Some of the changes are because I'm still stuck in Illinois, as Yaldibaldi keeps playing his cruel games. What's God? Well, you know, when you want something really bad and you close your eyes and you wish for it, God's the guy that ignores you. But I am profoundly grateful for your support, your feedback, and most of all, any awakening you may have. Thank you. Thank you. You're amazing. Have always been. You are Sophia's dream made manifest. Led us to our interview with Eric Wargo on his incredible new book, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. And now we must speak of Zhuangzhou, who fell asleep one day and dreamed he was a butterfly. For hours he fluttered in the warm winter sun, until he no longer remembered he was Zhuangzhou. Suddenly he awoke, and he was Zhuangzhou again. But in that moment he didn't know, was he Zhuangzhou who had dreamt he was a butterfly? Or a butterfly who was dreaming he was Zhuangzhou? This is the AM Byte interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined back by Eric Wargo to discuss his latest book, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, Interpreting Messages from Your Future. Eric, thank you very much for coming back and being here. Thank you very much, Miguel, for having me back. Can't wait to talk about this. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, as I mentioned before, I really, really loved your book. It's a book I'll have to read more than once. It's an important book, and it's got so much good stuff that we certainly want to get into. But uh, first, also somebody that we always are happy to have here is the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Uh didn't have any dreams about how the interview will go today, so it's going to be a complete, uh, <laughs> complete surprise. <laughs> well, you got to work on the yeah the exercises in the book. So, uh, but uh, first, Eric, I have to ask you, and I swear this happened, but last year around March, uh, when everything was you might say falling apart with the, our world, I was walking outside having a cigarette, probably doom scrolling on my phone about the whole pandemic thing. And at one point I said, I wonder if Eric's jotting down uh, precognitive dreams from his listeners or his uh, audience about COVID. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and, uh, and the truth is, you did right. I mean, you, you talk true, about yeah. your precog partner Toby telling mm-hmm. you about a precog dream. Yeah, several, in fact, that she she had. Now she's a she's a pro. She was already a pro dream worker before uh, uh, we even connected a few years ago after the the publication of my first book. And then this was, and you'll read the story in the new book, that this was actually a reconnection because we, we had, we actually were friends in college and then, then lost touch, but she was already a, uh, a pro dream worker and kept very detailed dream records and not only night dreams, but also uh, active dreaming during the day, sort of what people know as active imagination in the Jungian uh tradition and anyway so she kept detailed records of these and so she was able to go back um she's been able to go back and and find you know hundreds and hundreds of of precognitive dreams in her records and uh she had several from um she had a cluster of dreams uh in 2017 uh all in late march early april um that pointed directly to, I won't say events, but experiences in her life, in her family, in her family life, uh, exactly three years later at the start of the pandemic. Uh, and I've got a few of these in the, in the book. She has a, a lot more. Um, and a lot of other people have shared with me their sort of pandemic related dreams. Now it's, the pandemic is kind of interesting. It's like, on the one hand, yeah, I mean, it's the, you know, it's as big as, 9-11 was for, uh, <laughs> for yeah, yeah. you know, for our generation, you know, 9-11 was pretty huge. Um, I think, you know, for a younger generation that doesn't remember 9-11, you know, the pandemic is going to be the big thing. But the pandemic was not like one single, you know, explosive, you know, traumatic day. It was like <laughs> it was this, long this, year. <laughs> this long year and it affected everybody sort of differently. There wasn't a single moment in the pandemic so it's like it's going to be harder i think to pinpoint those like you know really clear unmistakable precognitive dreams uh, about related to the pandemic because precognitive dreams relate to our own experiences and our own thoughts and our own preoccupations and uh so people are really going to have to you know delve into their own thought processes a little more uh actively i think to sort of identify those those pandemic related dreams you know uh than say an event like 9-11 or whatever but yeah like lots of people have shared with me dreams related to their lives you know during the pandemic especially at the beginning of the pandemic a lot of people also were reporting to me um just general sort of sense of impending catastrophe like around the end of uh, around the end of, I guess, what was it, 2019, you know, people were, you know, were having lots of dreams about just bad stuff on the horizon. And, um, and in hindsight, you know, it seems kind of obvious what it's all about. The, tr- the trouble is that we were already kind of primed for the pandemic. I mean, there were, I forget when the news sort of broke from China, but it was, you know, late in the, late in the year, you know, so, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to pinpoint, well, you know, could people have really not had any clue what was going to happen based on what was happening in China? Who who knows? But uh, but yeah, yeah, it's going to be, it's, there's going to be, I'm sure that it'll be possible to write a book just about COVID dreams, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, and you are right. I mean, before the pandemic, we had those uh, devastating fires in Australia and oh, saber yeah. rattling with Iran. And of course, Trump had everybody always in a sense of, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, at the edge of our seat. So there was a lot going on. But at the same time, you do write that Toby actually uh, predicted the death of John Prine, who was a uh, the famous folk country singer who was the first celebrity to die of the virus in 2020. Yeah, right. Now I won't say that she she didn't predict the death of John Prine. What what she what she what she had was a dream on the morning of I forget the exact date. It was April, it was some date in early April 2017 where she woke from this dream and as sort of part of this dream there was a, a line of a song and she looked up that line and it turned out to be from his famous song angel from montgomery and then when she looked the rest of the lyrics it was like oh all the rest of the lyrics were what she was dreaming about you know there's like a child grown old and an old woman and a house and stuff like that i forget the exact uh, lines but anyway so she dreamed that song essentially and three it was and she was not like a big john prine fan you know or anything so uh three years to the day later John Prine became the first sort of celebrity death from COVID. Uh, and it was all over the news. And it was a big, you know, big kind of milestone in the earlier days of the pandemic that, you know, here's the first famous person to die from COVID. Um, so it's not like she predicted his death, but his death and the news of his death clearly refluxed three years in her brain <laughs> to, yeah. uh, to spark <laughs> a dream about his most famous song. Um, and that song, of course, it always comes up when John Prine comes up and he had, they, they had sang, uh, I think, uh, uh, it, that song had been sung in, in his honor a couple months earlier at the Grammys or something like that. So, uh, uh, so yeah, so, uh, that was a pretty, you know, and that's the way precognitive dreams are. It's like, you don't know what they mean and you don't even know that they're precognitive, <laughs> uh, but but when events transpire and you're paying attention, uh, you know, that's pretty uncanny. And, um, and one of the, the, one of the great things that that dream, like many of Toby's dreams and like many of my dreams and, and everyone else's dreams that I study, that was an example of what I call in the new book, calendrical resonance. There's uh, one of the features of precognitive dreaming is that we, we will often dream of powerful or salient experiences uh, exactly a year or exactly multiple years earlier. There's some way in which there's a sort of calendrical timekeeper in the brain. And I speculate in the book about how that might work. Um, but uh, but so so a certain date of the year will kind of pre-mind us of events, major events that happen uh, on that date in the future. Now, in a sense, this is not that surprising because uh, as I argue in the book, precognition is just an aspect of memory. It's just, uh, it's just part of our memory. Our memory extends, it, our memory goes both from past to future and from future to past. Right. Uh, and, uh, and it's no surprise, you know, we are often unconsciously reminded of events that occur on a date in the past, right? I mean, people will inexplicably feel sad 
on a certain day. It's like, why am I so sad? Then they'll suddenly look at the calendar and realize, oh, it's the my third anniversary of when my mom passed away or, or something like that. Like that's just, you know, that's just standard <laughs> uh, uh, in our, I don't, I don't know if that's been studied scientifically, but it's certainly standard in our folklore of memory. And, um, and what I'm arguing is that this, it's just no, no different for precognition. Um, yeah, I pre, I had precog when I, the births of both of my children had very specific details, uh, very specific, um, aspects to them, let's say. And, uh, when I went back to my dream records, you know, on exact, exactly a year before the births of both of my children, I had dreams about that were sort of symbolically about those, those very uncannily specific details about the births of my children. So, uh, it's just, it's a very, very common phenomenon. And honestly, I, the more I, uh, I've only, uh, become more and more aware of it as I collect examples from other people, um, uh, sharing their dream stories with me. It's just, it's just amazing, uh, how commonly this occurs. Oh, yes, indeed. And uh, yeah, like Philip K. Dick said, it's just remembering the future. But this is not just here. Sometimes I know in part of your book, you talk about check your dreams the last three days. It, it's not always years in advance. It can oh, be not always. sooner than that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, yeah, the majority of precognitive dreams are you're going to detect them. You're going to detect precognitive dreams that 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 relate to events in your near future, like the next few days. Um, uh, uh, and there again, it's just like memory in the sense that you know events that are in our recent past are more vivid in our memory. You know, you can remember what you did, you know, what you had for lunch, you know, two days ago, much better than you can remember what you had for lunch, you know, five months ago. You know, um, uh, so so yeah, there the there's some way in which the the mind brain whatever you want to call it is is seizing on upcoming events and and sort of symbolically representing them uh as as part of a, a the function of memory i believe and um yeah but but various things are going to skew that so a, a particularly powerful or or emotional experience you might precognize farther out in time and again, there's these these other kinds of resonances that are going to skew it too, like calendrical resonance, um, or a very specific, you know, occurrence in your future, and something happening today uh, is very similar in some way. That what I call thematic resonance that also may spark a dream that night, you know, tonight about that event in the future and that may not have anything to do with you know what day of the year it is so there's all kinds of factors that play into you know when you might have a dream related to a future experience but um right yeah and uh, as you say precognitive dreams is more about self it's orientation right it's sort of fixing all the timelines uh, you write uh, precognition isn't about events in the future it's about our own future experience it's, yes. uh, for the audience, I say, please watch uh, Arrival or Interstellar mm -hmm. if you really want to get a visual explanation of Eric's work. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, the, one of the big pre misconceptions about precognition that's been promoted, you know, throughout the literature on ESP um, is that it somehow is about events. 
you know, somehow a big event like 9-11, you know, planes crashing into buildings, somehow that sends ripples through space-time and, and, uh, uh, and our, some antenna in our brain receives it. <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. And, uh, and yet that's the impression that you come away with from pretty much any book on the subject. And so one of the things I'm really trying to do in this book is do a little bit of myth-busting about um, about precognition, that it's not about objective events in the future. It's about your own subjective future experiences, exactly the same way memory is. You know, it's like, you know, you don't remember, um, you know, I don't remember Watergate. I don't remember the Watergate break-in and, you know, whatever right. year it was. But I do remember, you know, many times watching All the President's Men and reading the book at some point and, you know, various other books that have referred to it over the years. So I know about Watergate and I, and I have a, and it's part of my memory of my life, but it's not because I was there, <laughs> you know, it's because I learned about it. Same way with precognition. You are precognizing you know, if information that you acquire in your future, learning experiences in your future, um, but not the events themselves. And this is, and it's, this is crucial. This is a crucial distinction because we, the way we learn of events can often be wrong or can be, have errors in it. Um, and when you use those discrepancies between an actual event uh, and the way it was reported in the news or the way you heard about it, or the assumptions you brought to it, or your emotions about it, the, pre the precognitive experience always relates to the latter. It doesn't relate to the reality as it was. Um, uh, so yeah, it's an important distinction. And it also, you know, most of, a lot of my precognitive experiences, and I think this is true of most people, are about things that are fictitious, you know, like a story, uh, a, a book or a movie or, or a scene, you know, a, a painting that you see on the internet or something like that. It's, 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 they're not, it's not about objective events. It's about, it's about, you know, things we encounter and those things can be fictitious or real or whatever. Right. And, uh, and something important to mention and definitely stress is uh, reading your book, you have plenty of examples of your precognitive pre work and Toby's and other individuals, but people might be going, well, maybe Eric is like the second coming of Edgar Case or something. He was born that way. But the truth is, we all have precognitive abilities. As you write, uh, precognitive unconscious is the best part of us. It's there for all of us. That's right. It's universal. And this is, this is, I hope is the big takeaway uh, from my book is that this is all, this is a basic function of our, of our minds. Okay. And it's, it's, it's basic to who we are, all of us, a precog, you know, I use the term precog. That's a term that comes from Philip K. Dick, of right. course, uh, as someone who, and of course it's always been intended to mean someone with super ESP ability. Well, I use the term, but what I really, you know, we're all precogs, but pre what I, what I, when I use the term precog, I'm really referring to someone who's aware of it, you know, who's become aware of their own precognition and has learned to make it work for them and, and to use it. And, uh, and that's what my book is trying to instruct people to do, how to do, uh, is to how to work with their precognition and become, first of all, by becoming aware of it. And, uh, and it's not obvious how to become aware of it. I mean, people go through life, even if they believe in this stuff and believe in precognition, they don't think it's under their control. They don't think it's in their power to have a precognitive dream. Um, and the fact is, I, th I think 
you know, and this is not something that's going to, I'm going to be able to prove anytime soon, but I think all dreams contain precognitive material probably. But how do you, how do you notice that? How do you identify it? Um, and just the first step is being aware that that's possible. You know, you, we right. not, no one has told us uh, before that, that this is a normal human ability that we all have. And um, I don't even consider it an ability. I mean, that almost, that too implies something that, that it's, uh, you know, that it's a special skill or something. I mean, the skill is involved in noticing it, cultiv- you know, learning how to work with it. That's the skill. But the, the actual fact of precognition is not a skill. That's, uh, it's just a ba- it's basic to our mental functioning, I believe. Well, what's the definition of precognition um, that you use? Yeah, I, I use the term precognition because it's the, it's the most widely recognized term. Um, it's a little bit, well, all the terms ha- have misleading aspects to it. So there's no perfect word for it. You know, other terms you'll hear are premonitions and uh, you know, presentiment and prophecy. These all these terms all have their own connotations. Like prophecy tends people tend to think of it in a religious context, uh, or you know, texts being prophetic or something like that. Um, people tend to think of premonitions as having to do with you know disasters and deaths, you know, which most precognitive experiences don't center on. Um, uh, precognition is just a general term for somehow knowing or being influenced by something in the future in a way that, 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 that goes beyond mere inference. You know, it's like you, you can, we can infer certain things about the future and we can predict, make predictions based on our past experience, of course, but um, precognition implies um, that somehow information from the future is reaching us in the present. That's what precognition means. And, uh, so sometimes I use, uh, because I'm, I'm most interested, well, precognition is very, it operates unconsciously. One of the reasons I'm so interested in the work of Sigmund Freud, trying to get people to sort of rethink Sigmund Freud and realize that actually he was actually really close, <laughs> really close to, what, to a yeah. theory of, of precognition without realizing it, um, is that precognition is primarily if not completely an unconscious phenomenon it happens uh all in all the ways that freud thought are you know we had forbidden repressed thoughts and and emotions that influenced us sort of outside our control you know via dreams and slips of the tongue and uh neurotic symptoms and creative inspiration and you know, coincidences seeming, you know, seeming what you'd call synchronicities, you know, all those things interested Freud as sort of symptoms of these, this buried, these buried, this buried reservoir of kind of forbidden repressed thoughts. Well, I think that, that he's totally right about how the unconscious expresses itself, but he was wrong about what the unconscious is. I think the unconscious is our future thoughts, our future consciousness, our future conscious, you know, feelings, uh, and thoughts and wishes and whatever influencing us backwards in time. And, and so, you know, if we read Freud that way, it's like, whoa, I mean, we have this whole huge literature, not just Freud, but his whole school of psychoanalytic uh, theorizing His whole is, is basically this ready-made theory of precognition. Um, 
and I, it's incredibly rewarding to go back to that stuff. Uh, I mean, whenever I crack a new book in the psychoanalytic tradition, um, I'm confronted with new examples of exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, it's like the, the theory of precognition, you know, actually makes better sense of all these case studies <laughs> than, right, than, yeah. than the, you know, the, the psychoanalytic theory as, as Freud formulated it. And that's not at all a criticism of Freud. I mean, that's, you know, he's been, he's been trashed over the years uh, <laughs> mightily and, you know, for some good reasons. I mean, he was, he was not perfect by any means and he, he made a lot of mistakes. Um, but, uh, but, you know, he was not, you know, who, who doesn't make mistakes, <laughs> you know, everybody. Um, everybody so uh i just think i'm just trying i'm i'm you know another of the kind of agendas of both of my books so far has been to get people to hey take a new look at freud because you're going to find a lot of clues here yeah do a great job and for the audience uh beyond great research and insights that eric has in precognitive dream work and the long self there are definitely exercises that you can use. He gives you yeah, good exercises so you can get your precog muscles in shape. He has dream work principles in his appendix and he uses them uh, across his book. So it's the full manual so you can, as again, to remember the future, as Dick said. And uh, what started you on this 10-year journey on writing your book, Eric? I believe it was what a... Uh, uh, Daryl Byrne at Cornell University, a study that blew your mind and kind of got you on the path. Was that it? Uh, yeah, I'm sort of. There were a few things that sort of got me on the path. And I think we actually might have talked about this last time I was on your show that that I, I you know, and it kind of started a little earlier started really in 2009 when I had a couple UFO sightings. <laughs> and oh, that, yeah, and right. it was that that kind of led me to Jacques Vallée uh, and, and, and through Jacques Vallée's writings, I was kind of exposed to to uh, parapsychology and the and the the findings from you know the research that was being done back in the nineteen seventies in remote viewing and stuff. And you know that that stuff really intrigued me and kind of piqued my interest. And ultimately, I kind of gave up the whole UFO thing because it's such a <laughs> such a quagmire of, of you know yeah, it's <laughs> a rabbit shady, hole. shady people <laughs> and, and you know who knows what's going on there. So it's like okay, I I'm, I I don't even like I don't I don't want to deal with this anymore. But the 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 psychic research was really really interesting to me. And then in 2011, along came this amazing paper by Daryl Bem who is a uh, who who is a very eminent scientific psychologist at Cornell University he's an emeritus professor now but he um, you know he had done you know a lifetime of really you know really solid research on personality and a bunch of other things but he also got interested I, I think in the early 90s he, he got interested in parapsychological research he was kind of the story of how he got interested in it is kind of interesting itself. We could talk about, but uh, anyway, so he did this series of studies over the course of the, you know, uh, 2000s um, where he have, you know, a large participant pool of students um, in his lab going, doing these various tasks, which kind of flipped the usual order of stimulus and response in, uh, in, in these experiments. Like, you know, usually you'd, you know, show, you know, present something to your participants and then see how they respond to it in some way. Well, he would 
have the response before <laughs> stimulus. Okay. And, uh, and he got significant results. He got significant results from, I think, uh, I, I think he, I think he did nine total experiments and I think he got significant response in eight of the nine maybe. And uh, showing that people pre-spawned to things in their future in various ways. And this, it, this, this article was just, it was like an earthquake in the, in the field of psychology. I mean, it really, uh, people got really mad. Um, <laughs> I, I happened to be working. I happened to be working as an editor at, uh, a major uh, organization of scientific psychologists at the time. And that's how I encountered this article. And it wasn't, we, our organization wasn't publishing this finding, but, uh, but I, I know some people where I worked were considering writing an angry or protest sort of letter to the journal that was publishing this um, because it was just you know, so obviously preposterous. <laughs> that, you know what he was finding uh and so i've got this real firsthand look at how how angry esp in general makes makes scientific psychologists who just think well there's no basis for this and it can't be true so even if you know these findings you know, even if it's experimentally sound and even if it passed peer review and everything which barrel bem's article did you know, it just can't be true. And so they, you know, it shouldn't be published. So, you know, I was getting a sense of the kind of, you know, kind of not censorship, but something close to that, you know, a, a kind of bullying um, toward an idea that just violated everybody's assumptions. And uh, so that was a wake up call. So not, not only was his paper a wake up call, but, but the response that it, it provoked was a real wake up call for me. So it just, that kind of just, made me even more curious about this stuff. And, uh, and that's where I really started delving into the literature on precognition. And the fact was I'd had my own experiences of precognitive dreams, which I had just swept under the rug and kind of ignored, but then, okay, I went back to them. Uh, I'd fortunately I'd kept a dream journal, you know, detailed dream journal for many years. Um, and, so I was able to kind of verify my memories of, of these, of these dream experiences. And, uh, and the more I delved into it, the more I started noticing new experiences. Um, and uh, yeah. And I think over the course of a few years, I think there's, I think as you go down this path, at least if you, when you go down this path without much in the way of validating literature out there, you, you constantly doubt yourself. And like, I would have an, you know, I'd have an amazing precognitive dream experience uh, and it was there recorded, you know, and then, it, and I'd written it down before the event that, that it precognized, but I would, but, and I'd, I'd be totally charged and turned on for, for a day or two about this, but still they, it, you, you the doubt cre keeps creeping in. And uh, it took, you know, I think it took a few years for my own doubt to kind of be, just worn away by the just the overwhelming evidence of this and at the same time you know I, I as i was writing about it on my blog uh people were sharing their experiences with me and i realized wow all the experiences that i'm reading both in the literature and that people are sharing with me and my own experiences they're they all follow certain patterns you know there's a pattern here that we could learn about and um uh and then i i you know, then I published Time Loops in 2018. And while this kind of personal journey 
uh, was there in the background of time loops. I didn't want that book to be about personal experiences. I wanted it to be, you know, research, solid research, you know, uh, you know, evidence that anyone can look, look to and, and, uh, and judge for themselves. Um, but, and, and as a result, I wasn't really able to delve into the dream phenomenon too deeply. I mean, I have, right. there's like a couple chapters in there that, that talk about it. And, and there's a lot of examples of precognitive dreams throughout the book, but uh, it didn't, didn't really satisfy, I think, this big need uh, for a book that really is a guide to precognitive um, dream work. And like, you know, after I published the book, I was just, you know, tons of people sent me their precognitive dreams. You know, Toby got in touch with me as like, you know, with a mind blowing experience of her own, which is in the book. Um, and it's like, yeah, this needs to be, this needs to be, there needs to be a, a guide for, for all these people out there. There are, you know, there are just so many people out there who have these experiences, but there's no, you know, they don't realize that these are a, they're common. Uh, there's no reason to be frightened by them. I think some people, you know, are, 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 are troubled by these experiences. Um, you can have them again and again and again, if you want, if you just know what to look for and how to do it, you know, so there's all kinds of, I think, uh, uh, needs, uh, that, that a book like mine is aimed to kind of meet. And I hope it's successful. One of the things you said, that, you know, I, I, I provide a complete guide. Actually, it's kind of incomplete in one way and that I, you know, <laughs> I, I spent the whole book talking about, you know, how to notice and interpret dream precognition, but it doesn't, there are no instructions for just the basics of, you know, how to induce dreams. You know, there are a lot, of, and I just decided, you know, I, I can't, that's a topic, you know, there's so many books on that already and you can Google it. You know, it's like, there's so many good YouTube instructional videos on how to have lucid dreams and, you know, how to, you know, on supplements that'll help you with, with dreaming. So I had all that kind of basic uh, stuff about how to improve your, your dreaming and your dream recall and how to induce things like lucid dreams and all that. There are lots of books on that. And, uh, but mine does not go into that that sort of basic level stuff, but that stuff that I honestly, as a single, a Google search will, will, will usually answer your <laughs> yeah. questions. A uh, YouTube video will go. A YouTube video will answer your questions. Um, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it, it's not easy because uh, for example, you just mentioned the blowback uh, that uh, Dr. Barron got, but I mean, you can look at, for example, your average, uh, skeptic society blog or Substack where they've been trashing dr dean radin for years i mm -hmm. mean uh, even though as your book says the cia and the russians have been using precognition and esp on a military level why do you think the science community so against esp precognition even if all the great studies that are out there is this time for a conspiracy theory eric or is it something more human <laughs> it's something more I would say institutional. Mm. It's not. Uh, it's not conspiracy, and it's not. Um, it's not all humans. <laughs> you know, a lot of humans <laughs> are pretty. You know, they're open-minded. You know, I think most of us are pretty open-minded. You know, to to a degree. Um, I think uh, one thing it's it's a mis it's a mistake. A lot of people, you know, like us who are interested in all this outrageous paranormal 
phenomena stuff. <laughs> high weirdness is there. High we go. weirdness, yes, exactly. <laughs> tend to blame science. You know, scientists are just against this stuff, and that's actually not the case. Uh, a lot of you know, I've. I, I know personally a lot of scientists who are totally on board with this, with these ideas. Um, you know, physicists, oddly enough, are often very open-minded to to these kinds of things. Um, the the there are certain, uh, I guess, realms in science, and psychology actually is kind of the the biggest offender here. Um, that are very closed to it, and I think I think it has to do with the history of the field more than anything else. Um, psychologists uh you know psychology you know back you know in the middle of the last century um you know psychology didn't have a great reputation it was not considered a hard science really um it was uh psychologists struggled to be taken seriously okay and so they kind of learned to be uh incredibly rigorous about their their experimental studies and to be like um, incredibly cautious in the kinds of claims that they would make. Um, and as part of that, they kind of rejected anything to do with parapsychology. Parapsychology just became this, this kind of rejected, you know, uh, um, kind of embarrassment for psychologists. And um because you know they were struggling for their own legitimacy they didn't want you know ideas that you know that that seemed shaky to be part of uh to be part of the field or part of the reputation of the field and that was part of this effort to gain uh credence for psychology and for psychological science um so there's this incredible conservatism i guess in the field. And that's still part of the culture there. I mean, that's the, that's what I was seeing firsthand uh, when I kind of worked uh, uh, as an editor in that field, I saw this, this, this just, you know, super protectiveness of the scientific reputation of the field of psychology. And unfortunately, as part of that um, kind of these kind of shakier uh studies and ESP and so on just get rejected out of hand by uh, because of that mindset. So, you know, it's not a conspiracy. It's not, um, you know, there's nothing, I don't know, nefarious about it really. Um, it's just kind of this, it's, it's an aspect of, of the, of the history of psychology as a, as a science, as a field. I think I think that's the the, ba the basic answer to your question. No, that makes sense, and hopefully it's getting better with your work and so forth. Because uh, again, the attacks sometimes are pretty vicious. They're not giving a lot of these individuals a chance. Well, I've got an agenda here with my book, and that's that you know no psychologists are going to read my book uh, or take it seriously. But I think that if we change the conversation, you know, more generally, I think if more people just ordinary people from all walks of life are aware of this phenomenon and have a vocabulary in which to talk about this phenomenon right. and are sharing their stories. And uh, I think inevitably, you know, that will break down uh, the, the, the barriers in psychology because, you know, eventually 
some psychologist who's come up against this idea from their friends and so on is going to have their own precognitive dream and they're going to go, you know, it's, <laughs> it's dishonest of me to, to, to reject this. I need to like, you know, uh, you know, maybe do you know, put some money into some research on this or, or whatever. It's going to, I think changing conversation in the culture more generally around the paranormal is what's going to soften these, these kind of bastions of, of, kind of denial <laughs> in yeah. in 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 the academy and in the sciences and like so i'm sort of following the lead of of jeffrey kripal you know whom who we're both we both know uh who's really done so much in his books to legitimize paranormal phenomena uh for an audience of academics you know you know he's not he's not writing so much for the public he's writing for academics and saying look these things are real even if we don't understand them and it's we've you know, we've got to end this culture of of denial um and kind of ridicule you know <laughs> um, yeah well uh, i'm glad you're doing it and uh before i want to get of course into jung because your ideas on him are incredible and i love them but uh, before that vance do you have any uh, questions for eric oh yeah eric uh, i know this isn't a focus of your book but do you think there's a relationship between precognitive dreams and the state that people get into when they practice certain forms of divination, like tarot cards, I Ching, or even meditation, where um, you get into a dreamlike state and maybe you use, you know, the cards or the I Ching or whatever you're using to uh, stimulate yourself or to guide, uh, to, to guide uh, what comes to you. But you think there's a connection there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And there's my, the last couple chapters of my book, uh, go into this, uh, the, there, you can, you can access this, you can access precognition, uh, in any like trance or, or meditative state. Uh, I, I focus on dreams because we all dream and we don't need to like do anything special to dream and not everybody has meditative meditation experience or experience with trance states, but all those states are uh, what I call psych or precognition conducive. Um, uh, and so, yes, absolutely. And yeah, yes, that's, I, this is exactly what I think is going on with divination, um, like with tarot cards or whatever. I mean, you can yeah, pretty remote much viewing it. too. remote viewing. Exactly. You can, um, uh, and people develop their own idiosyncratic divination methods that work for them, you know, whatever works, whatever sort of gets you in that little zone, uh, uh, you know, do it. And it's, precognition i think it's precognition operating but however but it doesn't matter how you think of it it doesn't matter how the diviner imagines what's happening but i i do think that that's that's what's operative in those in those states i think you know you asked about my definition of precognition i <clears throat> i think that the 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 most basic expression of precognition uh and the best way honestly the best model for understanding it is dowsing Okay, dowsing, you know, we, we think of it as like walking over a landscape, you know, with forked, forked stick, you know, trying to feel some tug towards hidden water. But you can use dowsing to locate any lost object and you can do it over a map. You can, you know, it's, there's all kinds of uses for it. And I think that, I think that's sort of, I think of dowsing as kind of the stem cell of precognition, because I think that um, uh, it's, 
taking this unconscious, uh, this unconscious stimulus from our future. I think it's, I think dowsing is really responding to that future reward of finding what we're looking for. Okay. And that, and that's being translated through what's called the ideomotor effect, which is how the muscles kind of uh, translate some sort of unconscious uh, awareness or thought. Uh, and that's, you know, what the dowser is doing. They're sort of entraining this precognitive signal of a reward in their near future, you know, via their hands holding a stick and it's sort of guiding them to where they're going to find that reward. Okay. It's sort of a time loop <laughs> uh, sort of enacted. And I think, I think that's what's happening with divination more generally. We're, we're, you know, using some tool, it can be an arbitrary tool. It can be the tarot deck, it can be the I Jing. You know, I, uh, I've heard, you know, various idiosyncratic um, divination methods that are, you know, that are hilarious, you know, um, uh, one divination teacher that I, uh, that I follow on, on Twitter, you know, uses, uh, she teaches all kinds of methods, but she will use the, uh, uh, I forget the band. She uses a, uh, she'll use the song library of a certain band from the seventies and she'll put it on random randomly. And the song will, will provide, will guide her to the, to the answer to a <laughs> Very question. Very cool. Yeah, and I, I I developed a method using the original Star Trek series that I that I that I, <laughs> I, I, ran, I randomized to an episode, and then randomized to a part of the episode, and and uh, and it's it's produced you know uncanny results. But I don't think it's because it's connected to you know objectively to the universe of events. It's it's just activating my own uh, precognitive ability. Um, so. Yeah. So your yes, and answer your question. Yes, yes. Capital. Yes. <laughs> ah, good. Yeah. So if the tribbles come up, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Awesome. And it should be important too to mention before we get to to Jung is uh, you're not doing this as you say to win the lottery or rule the world or anything like that. Um, to do the precognition or even change the future, this is something to make you more whole. That's what it helps the individual at the end of the day, right? It's it's a healing exercising. It's an individuation exercise, precognition. Absolutely. It's a gnosis. It's a gnosis. Exactly. It's a gnosis. It's a path of insight. And um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there are, there, are, there are lots of interesting, well, while it is something that can be used and can improve your life and so forth, even in objective ways. Uh, and I believe it does have that, that it evolved to have that function. I, I, you know, I do think that, that, that what I call precognition operating unconsciously, you know, is an aspect of the survival of not only our species, but of, of any living system. I think these are, this is a, a, a universal capacity of living systems. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the, the doing precognitive dream work and, and getting in touch with it is much more important for giving you this sense of yourself, the wholeness of yourself in four dimensions. And that's why I call, talk about the long self. Um, you know, we go through life, we've kind of been conditioned, at least in our culture, to think of the past as dead and gone and irrelevant except for our memories, which may be inaccurate or whatever. And that the future has no, you know, can't obviously influence us now. It has no relevance and who, you know, it's uncertain and all. And so all we are is just who we are at this moment, you know, and it's just kind of this very minimizing, diminishing um, uh, 
picture of who we are and if who we are and if our you know present if the present moment is kind of dismal and sucks you know well you know <laughs> what else are we but this sucky creature you know um uh what what precognitive what kind of dream work leads to is what i call precognitive life work which is means you're really starting to rethink your whole life based on how your present has influenced who you were in the past and even the decisions you made in the past and uh, as well as how the future is influencing you now so it's like there's this uh, you start to see yourself as this four-dimensional um uh uh splendid creation in the in the in the in the universe um and it's uh it's sublime to have this have this realization and that's the that's the gnosis you know that precognitive dream work leads to um so yeah it's about it's about about like really seeing the value and and just sublimity of a human life um whatever you know whatever you are and whoever you are um you're amazing and the, the things you've done in your life your whole biography is all there it's all still you know your life you know up till this point is still encoded you know in your tesseract brain but so is all your your future life you know everything right. you're, you're going to do is still already there in your head symbolically at least and you know that's like that's mind blowing when you start to to have these experiences and then meditate on what that means. Well said, indeed. Yeah, it's when people ask me about, let's say, uh, the Thunder Perfect Mind in the Nakamadi Library. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. read it, Eric, yeah. where she's yeah. going, "I am the whore, I am the victorious, I am the goddess." And people are like, what is she doing? I'm like, man, she is recalling every point of her existence. She is oh. in full gnosis. She is, you know, total recall or self-actualization. At every point, she is there. So that that's, sort of uh, reminds me of your work where you're oh, there. Oh, that's amazing. I, I that That's incredible. I'm like, wow, now I want to go back and reread that. Because, <laughs> yeah, no, I read, I you know, yeah, of course I read that. But, like, it's been years since I read it. And I had not never thought of that in terms of, the long self but god totally you're totally right oh man right, that, that's, mesh. A, that's a that's a great example wow and uh, can we uh change our our uh, our child self i would say we can you know, again the gnostics were obsessed about going to the past and i always like this quote by uh, tom robbins it's never too late to have a happy childhood Absolutely. we could go to our our child self that was abused and maybe comfort him or give him a memory could we yeah that's yes <laughs> yes and there's a chapter in my book and about i've done this. that eric i'm gonna admit it i've done that <laughs> or have you well okay yeah I, I i totally think it's it's true i i think it, this delves into realms that you know probably you know we could talk for at length about <laughs> probably too too big for for right. one one episode but you know the the distinction between changing the past as in terms of objective events in the past versus versus coming to a new realization about the past and what actually happened in the past and what you actually thought in the past. That's an important distinction here. Um, But absolutely the idea of, 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 you know, sending a thought into your past. This is something that, that Toby in my book does. I mean, this is, uh, yeah. And I've, I've, I've spoken to other people who are actively doing this. Um, uh, and so, yes, this is, this is, this is part of it. 
Yeah, again, we're looking at the movie Interstellar and Arrival. That's what's happening through these movies. This time loop that you talk about. Right, 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 right. This healing time loop. Awesome. Well, uh, I want to move to Jung because, again, I loved your ideas and your part on it, especially the idea of Jung's synchronicity, that a casual principle of connectivity, that uh, connection that's not time and space, it's not casual, it's experience and meaning. And uh, I love you basically write that Jung didn't go far enough with synchronicity, you think? I think Jung, well, you know, I, I, Jung, in a sense, he copped out a little bit. He, <laughs> because, uh, okay, because, you know, he was, he was right. He was, as I say in the book, he was ahead of his time. Um, you know, he was working with, uh with you know quantum physics as it as he understood it and as it existed in the you know late 40s you know you know early 50s uh when he was sort of formulating these ideas sort of suggested to him and i think he was right that causality is is not what we think it is and thing events especially in human life you know, there are these meaningful coincidences. Well, how could this be in a in a world where you know, and atoms ran, randomly hit each other, and and there's no uh, no force from the future, you know, giving order to them. So, so you know, he was right that the sort of spooky phenomena that that uh, that quantum physicists at that time were starting to describe was going to be the answer to meaningful coincidences in our lives where he went wrong and where I think he copped out was in this claim that, well, in order to understand these things, you just have to collapse uh, the time dimension and say, well, time doesn't matter. You know, things are all happening simultaneously. The, the, you start to understand how these phenomena work when you do the opposite, when you actually map out that those temporal relationships between events uh, with the understanding that retrocausation is happening in the individual brain, the individual's life. It's not happening out in the world. It's happening in our nervous systems and we're being guided. We are, we are creating these convergences in our lives through this unconscious like this unconscious, you know, precognition dowsing process that we're engaged in constantly without being aware of it. We are orienting towards rewards and discoveries in our future. Um, and you understand these occurrences much better when you don't collapse the time dimension and instead see how precognition is operating and how, and that enables you to then have these experiences more frequently and uh and use them i think um the, the sense you get from from jung that i object to is that uh that you know archetypes in some sort of platonic world of ideal forms you know are somehow right. imp- imprinting themselves on our lives i i totally don't agree with that i think that that um that archetypes you know these are these are future features of our own our own experience um, and they are, and they imprint themselves on their life. Yes, but it's through our own actions and, uh, and through our own unconscious, uh, unconsciously being guided towards 
rewards and insights in our future. Uh, and it really, as I show in the book, that this really helps you understand a lot of like the famous synchronicity cases in his own writings, for instance, um, I think a lot better than, than his just, well, just get rid of the time dimension and then, you know, just say it's all a big, <laughs> it's all a big synchronistic soup. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't really help you. I mean, it's, you know, synchronicity is great as a word to describe, you know, meaningful coincidence, but I think going beyond that uh, to really map out the sort of causal relationships, including retro causal relationships um, that are, uh, that are causing these experiences uh, really immensely adds to our understanding and adds to our ability to use these things in our lives. Well, as we're getting to the end of the interview, Eric, where can people find out more about your book? Well, you, my book is now, it's, uh, it's called Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, online and theoretically in bookstores as well. Um, uh, so just um, Google it. It's 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 from Inner Traditions. In fact, I saw today that there's two dollars off uh, if you order it directly from the publisher, Inner Traditions. Um, so uh, you can get a deal uh, if you do that. I think it's I assume it's innertraditions.com, but uh, yeah, and my first book is Time Loops, um, uh, which goes into much greater detail about the evidence and the theory of retrocausation, and um, also has some good kind of chapters on on some big name precogs, uh, including Philip K. Dick and Maggie Carl, who we were talking about earlier, and um, Morgan Robertson, who wrote about the titanic disaster 14 years before it happened um so yeah it's more of a deep dive into the the topic of precognition and retrocausation in general um yeah you and have my, a website? My, yeah yeah my blog uh is the nightshirt the nightshirt.com all one word the nightshirt so yeah people can learn about me there as well and i'm on twitter i uh i uh i have an active twitter presence and actually a lot of I've a lot of people have sent me um, a lot of people I interact with on Twitter have sent me their precognitive dreams uh, via Twitter direct messaging. Um, so I've got. So that's, is that your preferred mode? If somebody has a, a dream to send it to you or. Uh, yeah. Uh, Twitter is fine. Um, the, my email address is, is in the book, uh, the new book. Um, so they can find it there too. Awesome. Well, audience, I definitely advise you to get precognitive dream work and the long self. It's a, excellent read time loops was a good read and it will definitely make your life better or more reoriented reoriented with all the different yous that are out there inside across time so great read and we've truly enjoyed having you again on aeon bite but first let me say bye to you vansfer and thank you for keeping us company Oh, it's uh, very fascinating to hear about all these iconoclastic concepts. <laughs> and we got to make Luton new right, languages. All right, there you go. That's what, yeah. <laughs> like that. Well, Je that's what Jeff Kripal always says. It's we need new language, new words. The, the old ones aren't working. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, Eric, as always, thank you very much for coming on AM Byte. Uh, again, really enjoyed your book and good luck with everything. Thank you, Miguel. Uh, it's been awesome. I, I love talking on your show. Uh, thank you, Vance. Sure. Thank my pleasure. You. And there you have it. Oh, you veterans of a thousand psychic wars. 
Can you already start remembering your future? In our second part, Eric will continue with Jung. Eric will discuss how Jung screwed up the story of Maggie and the whole Scarab incident. He'll address whether dreams can be prophetic in the more traditional sense. Then he'll get more science-like and bring in quantum physics, wormholes, and black holes. Think again of the movie Interstellar. Eric will share his block universe model with time loops and where there is no free will at all. So you were meant to support this red pill cafeteria, right? Get the second part of our interview with Eric Wargo. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic or Hermetic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. When you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership includes full access to more than 14 years of quality interviews. It includes an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, where many past guests hang out there and I'm always there to answer your questions. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the US mail really, really helps. Don't forget I'm offering voiceover services if you need some audio for your projects. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list, as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. The Finding Hermes program is live, and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics, and a whole lot of stimulating conversation and a Q&A. I've already given lessons on Gnostic chants, vowel magic, sex magic, entheogens, astral ascents, mystical Eucharist, and much more. If you want to understand and experience in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. You can do so many wonders. I just know it. I just know it. Remember and heal the future at the same time. You are precognitive just as you are divine. We all are, and it's time we total recall that shit. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, 
we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.